Hey, I am really impressed with your new church building. I like it a lot. Uh, we went through a building program and we had a slogan, Excellence Without Extravagance. And I think that's what you've done here. You've done it for the Lord Jesus and it's excellent, but you've been good stewards and it's spacious and beautiful and it's a tool to help you accomplish your mission, which is to introduce people to Jesus Christ and help them get better acquainted. But I'm more impressed with your leaders. I got to meet yesterday with uh, some of your elders, met some of your staff, and you really have talented, capable leaders who love the Lord and are committed to this church, and the future of this church is bright. My wife Judy and I have fallen in love with uh, Marty and and uh, Lori and have enjoyed them. Marty's my kind of preacher. He preaches the Bible with passion. He has a pastor's heart, loves people, and he's personable. He's not arrogant. He's humble. But I'm kind of concerned about him because he's aging a lot. And he just (laughs) looks so much older than the last time I saw him. Uh, I'm six years older than Marty, but I look a lot younger than Marty. Have you noticed that? Have you noticed as, as you get older, the people your age always look older than you think you look? I heard about a woman who went back to her high school reunion for the first time in a long time and she walked into the room, couldn't get over how old everybody looked, and she said, this can't be my class, everybody looks so old. And she bent down to one guy she didn't recognize, looked particularly old, and she said, what year did you graduate? He said, 1958. She said, well, this is my class then. He said, really, would you teach? I can identify with that, but you be easy on Marty so that he can look a little younger. I want to talk with you today about great joy, particularly great joy regardless of circumstances. On that first Christmas night in Luke 2, the Bible says that the angels said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy to all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now the circumstances around that first Christmas were not all that joyful. Uh, The Roman soldiers brutalized the Jews. Mary and Joseph lived under the poverty level. Jesus was born in an unsanitary shed. And the shepherds were working the night shift. And yet the angel said, I bring you good news of great joy. About 33 years later, just hours before he was going to be crucified, Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen. And yet he said to his disciples, I say these things to you so that my joy might be in you and your joy might be complete. About 30 years after that, the apostle Paul, writing at a time of significant persecution, said, now the fruit of the Spirit is joy. So one of the predominant characteristics of those of us who follow Jesus Christ there is that there ought to be a spirit of joy about us. Because what, regardless of what's happening in Washington, D.C. or North Korea or a school in Santa Fe, Texas, we have a hope that will never perish, spoil, or fade kept in heaven for us. But frankly, I encounter a lot of people, Christian people, who aren't very joyful, particularly older Christian people. 
our lives are characterized by complaining about what's wrong with us physically, pining for the past when we were more important, criticizing the younger generation for not showing respect, whining about how horrible the government has become. And it seems to me that the older we get in the Christian life, sometimes the more sour we become. One teenager complained, my grandpa has OCD. You mean he has obsessive compulsive disorder? Oh no, he said, he's old, cranky, and dangerous. <laughs> Remember that old movie, uh, Grumpy Old Men, starring Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon? If we're not careful, as we age in the Christian life, we can become grumpy old Christians. And that should not be. The Bible does not say, rejoice in the Lord until you get to be 55, and then you got a license to get grouchy. No, it says rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. About a year ago, I met a guy in Grayson, Kentucky, who was 104 years old. He walked into the room where I was preaching, walked with a cane, but he was mentally alert. And after, I, after the program, I just had to meet him. He had a twinkle in his eye and told me a joke. And I thought, well, maybe that's one of the reasons he's living so long. And then I turned around behind me, and there must have been seven, eight people standing in line just to shake his hand. You know, older people who are Christian, who are joyful to be around, are a positive witness for Christ. But people who are old, cranky, and dangerous are not. And they're wasting away their lives one day at a time. Jesus said, I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. So my goal for you today is that in a few minutes when you walk out those doors, I want you to be determined that you're going to live every day full of joy and make the most of every day that God gives you. Now, I will admit this is not an easy challenge because it's hard to be joyful when the body hurts, people disappoint, the future's uncertain, loved ones die. But I'm going to share with you what I consider to be the four most important things we can do to be joyful as we mature in Christ. Here's the first one. Be confident of your salvation in Jesus Christ so that you don't fear death. To be joyful in the present, you have to have hope for the future. Joy and hope go hand in hand. If you're on a cruise in the Caribbean and terrorists take over the ship and they say we're going to blow the ship up in two days but in the meantime go ahead and have a good time. You wouldn't have a good time because to have joy you've got to be hopeful that there's a harbor in view. So I can understand why unbelievers are more crotchety and melancholy as they get older because most of their life is behind them and they don't have much to look forward to. If all we are is roadkill and we die and we vaporize, then life is meaningless and life is hopeless. But if you're growing older in Christ, you can always have a spirit of joy because you know that the best is yet to be. That's what the Apostle Paul was talking about in 2 Corinthians, the end of the fourth chapter, when he said, therefore we don't lose heart, though outwardly we waste away. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary. What is unseen is eternal. And then the next verse says, Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building of God eternal in the heavens, not made by human hands. 
You see, if you're confident your sins are forgiven, and you're confident you're going to go to heaven when you die, regardless of the circumstances that are going on in your life, you can still be joyful because you know that the best is still awaiting us. So let me just take a minute to say a word to anybody in this room who has never accepted Jesus Christ as personal Savior, and you're not confident you're going to heaven. You may say, well, I hope I'll go to heaven because I've lived a pretty good life, and I think God will save me because my good deeds have outweighed my bad deeds. But the Bible makes it clear that even our righteousness is as filthy rags before God, and we cannot do enough to earn salvation. Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 8 and 9, says it like this. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, so that no one will boast. Evangelist Paul Little puts it like this. He said, let's imagine we line everybody up along the shore of the Pacific Ocean, and we tell them, swim to Hawaii. How many would make it? Nobody. The doggy paddler might go 20 feet. The Olympic swimmer might swim 20 miles. But everybody's doomed. Nobody can swim to Hawaii. But if a cruise ship came along and a benevolent captain threw out a life ring and said, I'll give a free trip to Hawaii. Anybody wants to get on board, who would make it to Hawaii? Those who were humble enough to say, I can't make it on my own. I'm not that good a swimmer. I'm going to trust the captain. And that's a picture of the Christian life. So we come to the place where we say, I know I'm a sinner. I need forgiveness. I trust Jesus dying for me on the cross. And if you've never accepted Christ, claim his promise. Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized shall be saved. Don't wait. You're running out of time. But unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. But I encounter a lot of Christian people people who have given their life to Christ, who still aren't confident that they're going to be saved. Say, you're going to go to heaven when you die? Well, I hope so. And the reason they're not confident is because they've committed a lot of sin since the day they gave their life to Christ. I grew up in a wonderful Christian home, and when I was eight years old, I gave my life to Christ, and a few days later, I was baptized. And I'll never forget how good I felt when I did that. I knew at age eight that my sins were forgiven. I had the promise of eternal life. Jesus was my Savior. But that was like 20, 25 years ago. And uh, maybe more than that. And I have committed a whole lot more sin since that time. And frankly, I've done a lot worse things since I was eight than I did before. And I sometimes allow the adversary to come in and cause me to doubt and say, will God still forgive me even though I've committed so many sins? It is so important that we understand what happened to us when we gave our life to Christ. When you become a Christian, God doesn't just forgive your sins. He adopts you into his family. The blood that Jesus shed was the price of ransom and adoption. 1 John, the third chapter, says this. See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that's what we are. Let me ask you parents, you grandparents, how many offenses will you forgive your kids? How many times will they betray you and disappoint you and go astray and you forgive them? a whole lot. I have two sons. One is a policeman and one is a preacher. We have love and justice in our home. (laughs) 
But when one of my sons was 17, he broke a family rule big time. And when I found out about it, I was really angry at him. And I sat him down in the family room and I confronted him. And to his credit, he said, Dad, I'll admit I did it and I'm really sorry. Please forgive me. But I'm not a perfect father. And I was angry at him and I began to grind him down. Why would you do that? We've warned you about that. Why would you even go to a place like that? Why do you run around with some of those kids? You know where that leads. And to his credit, he didn't bolt out saying, I'm tired of living in a fishbowl. I can't live up to your expectations. I'm out of here. No, he broke. And he put his head in his hands and he began to sob. And he said, Dad, I am so sorry. Please, Dad, forgive me. And then he said, Dad, could we pray or something? Let's wrap this up, you know. <laughs> But when he said, can we pray or something, I broke. And I began to sob. And we knelt at the couch in the family room, arm in arm, and we both blubbered out a prayer. And we stood and embraced. I forgave him. He forgave me for being too stern a father. And strange thing, I never felt closer to my son than I did at that moment when he needed my forgiveness. And I granted it. The Bible says that God is near to those of a contrite heart and a humble spirit. Do you have any idea how many times I've almost disowned my kids? Any idea how many times I've almost scratched them out of the will? I'll tell you how many times. Zero. They're my kids. Now God is much more loving and he's a perfect father. And I'm not one. But when you became a Christian, God adopted you into his family. And even though we stumble and fall, we're still his child. We still have the promise of eternal life. I think there's a passage in 2 Timothy, the second chapter, verses 12 and 13, that sums up for me this debate about once saved, always saved, or eternal security that you hear debated in churches. Here's what it says. If we disown him, he will disown us. But if we are faithless, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown himself. Now, look at this verse. It, we are saved by putting our trust in Jesus Christ. But if we disown him, we say, I'm not trusting Christ anymore. I don't believe in that stuff anymore. I'm an atheist. I'm a Muslim. I reject Christ. He'll disown us. He'll let us go. But if we are faithless, that we stumble and fall. We don't live up to our faith, even though we still trust him. He'll still be faithful because he can't lie about being our father. And we, he will forgive us. Listen, there is no sin so horrible that you've committed that the blood of Jesus Christ can't cleanse you and make you whiter than snow. And reverently, there is no sin you will ever commit between now and the day you die that is so great that it will separate you from the love and grace of God. That's why one of my favorite songs is a song called It Is Well With My Soul. You know that song? There's a stanza that says, My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole. Not just what I did before I was eight. Not the part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, oh my soul. Is that good news? Be confident of your salvation because you're a child of God. Unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Here's the second 
thing we can do to be joyful people, and that is choose to be joyful every day regardless of circumstances. Deuteronomy 30 verse 19 says, I set before you life and death, blesses and curses. Now choose life so that you and your children may live. Choose life, choose joy every day. Minerth and Meyer wrote a book years ago called Happiness is a Choice, and I believe that. We think happiness is a result of whatever happens to us that day, and certainly that plays a part. But the more I've observed life, the more I'm convinced that contentment, joy, are daily choices that we make to follow Christ every day. Uh, I do mentoring groups for young preachers as a retired preacher. Once a month I bring in eight different guys. They don't know each other. So the first thing we do is we go around the table and we tell our story. And one night I had eight young preachers and I looked at the first one. His name tag said he was Caleb. So I said, Caleb, tell us your story. He said, well, my name is Caleb and I've been the preacher of our church for two years and before that I was a youth minister for four years. You could hear a pin drop in the room. This guy was a preacher at a church of 400 people and he had a rather severe stuttering problem. About the third sentence he got a twinkle in his eye and he said, now you pro- probably haven't even, even, even noticed but I've got a little, little, little bit of a speech impediment. And the guys giggled nervously kind of like you're doing right now. And I tried to ease the tension by saying, uh, Caleb are you kind of like Mel Tillis the singer? He stuttered until he sang. When he sang he knew he was going to sing he never stuttered. When you preach do, do you not stutter? He said, no I, I stutter that or someone I pre- preach. Con- my congregation says it's, it's kind of endearing to them. He said, "I'll get." He said, "I get hung. I get hung up. I get hung up on a word, and they'll call it out to me from the congregation when I'm preaching." And we started to laugh. And he said, "You know, I've, I've stuttered since the time I was a little little boy. My mother mother said the fir- first words out of my mouth, mouth were mama mama mama." <laughs> he had us in stitches the entire week. One of my favorites. One of the best examples of a weakness becoming a strength because of a spirit of joy. I believe that. You choose your attitude of joy or you choose to be miserable. You can't always choose your circumstances, but you can choose to refrain from griping and complaining every day. In the book of Philippians, the second chapter, verse 14, we read, Do everything without complaining. Can you believe that? Do everything without complaining. Let's all say that together so we've got it today. Do everything without complaining. A little bit better. Do everything without complaining. Some of you here, though I don't know you, I guarantee you, you think complaining is your spiritual gift. But it is not a spiritual gift. Listen to me. No matter how bad you feel, I'm going to tell you the truth. Nobody wants to hear it. And when you gripe and complain all the time, you alienate people, you make yourself feel worse, and you become lonely. So unless you're talking to your doctor or talking to your mate when they're asleep, do everything without complaining and griping to be joyful. You can't always choose your circumstances, but you can choose to laugh out loud several times a day. The Bible says a merry heart does good like medicine. And I think when we laugh out loud, there are enzymes released in our body that are healthy, and it's certainly for healthy for other people. You can choose to do that. You can't choose your circumstances, but you can choose to develop a cheerful countenance. Proverbs 15, 13 says, a happy heart makes the face cheerful. And the verse 30 says, a cheerful look brings joy to the heart. Uh, 
Listen, as we get older, our skin sags and our muscles droop. And if you're not careful, your normal expression as you get older looks like the Grinch that stole Christmas. But Psalm 34, 5 says, those who look to him are radiant. If you've been in the presence of God, there ought to be a radiance and a joy about you. You, you can spend $1,000 and get a facelift and look like a scarecrow, or you can choose just to turn up the corners of your mouth or twinkle in your eye and smile. There's a button that says, if you've got the love of Jesus in your heart, notify your face. <laughs> I, I tell young preachers all the time, I tell them, look, when, when you preach, there ought to be an expression on your face that looks like you've got some good news to share. I tell them, you watch Joel Osteen when he preaches. Don't listen to what he says, but watch his expression. <laughs> and he's got this smile. He, it's this contagious, his spirit. And I'll tell them, listen, once in a while, you can walk into the pulpit and say, folks, I've really had a rough week and I've got a bad cold today and family's had some problems. I just want you to, to pray for me. And the congregation will rally to your cause, but not very often. Most of the time, regardless of what's happening, you better walk in that pulpit and say, this is the day the Lord has made. Let's rejoice and be glad in it. And I, I, I want to, they'll say, well, that's phony. No, that's obedience. Because Jesus said, when you're fasting, don't let the world know that you're fasting. Wash your face, comb your hair, put on a cheerful countenance to the world, and your Heavenly Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And I would challenge you, you go out into that community. Let people see a radiance about your face, an expression of joy. And if enough of you do that, this place will be so contagious you can't keep people away. Look at this verse of scripture in 1 Peter 4.13. It says, rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Rejoice that you participate in suffering? Yeah, he says two reasons. One is if you're suffering, you can still rejoice because you can better appreciate what Jesus went through for you. When you're under stress, you can appreciate the kind of stress that Jesus endured. Or you have people reject you or be, disappoint you. Think about the people who disappointed and betrayed Jesus. Or you're going through physical pain. If you never hurt, you wouldn't appreciate what Jesus did for you on the cross. I'll tell you, the most I ever hurt physically, I had a kidney stone one time. Anybody have a witness there? Okay. I'll tell you, a kidney stone hurts a lot more than birth pangs. Don't ask me how I know. I just know. I felt, like, I felt like somebody had a knife in my back. And then I thought, you know, Jesus had nails in his hands and feet and no morphine for six hours. And I could even rejoice. I better appreciate what Jesus went through for me. Second reason you can rejoice in suffering is when you suffer, it enhances your credibility. It, your opportunity for witnessing is enhanced. Uh, I was once playing basketball in my younger years with a bunch of guys from church, and I sprained my ankle, and I was writhing in pain on the floor, and the guys gathered around me to see if the preacher was okay, and one guy said, go ahead and cuss, preacher, we know you're thinking it. <laughs> he was right, too. <laughs> but when you hurt, people, look, 
the spotlight is on you. C.S. Lewis once said, pain is God's megaphone. He shouts to us in our pain. But it's also a spotlight that people look to see. Will you curse God? Will you hold on to your faith even though things are falling apart? And when you're going through pain, you can do more in witnessing than you could maybe in two or three years of ordinary living. So even though you're hurting, you choose every day. I want to challenge you every morning when you get out of bed. Before you get up, you say, this is the day the Lord has made, and I can be grumpy and grouchy and ruin it and drag other people down, or I can rejoice and be glad, and I choose today to rejoice and be glad. Here's the third thing I think we need to do to be joyful, and that is to uh, become increasingly generous with our resources. The Bible says it's more blessed to give than to receive. Now we've heard that principle all our lives, but we have difficulty putting it into practice. As we get older, we become more miserly. Many of us. And I'll tell you why. Because all our lives, we look forward to retirement. And we worry about whether we're going to have enough money saved up to retire. And we get in the habit of saving more and more because we don't want to be a burden on anybody. We don't want to have pressure in retirement. And soon our self-worth is attached to our net worth. And we're in such a habit of hoarding that even when we get enough, we continue to hoard up. And we just have a whole lot until the day we die. It's just the opposite of what the Bible tells us to do. Look at Luke 16 verse 9. Jesus said... You use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves, and then when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings. He doesn't say, hoard up all your wealth so that you have a lot, and then when you die, leave it to the church and leave it to your children, leave it to parachurch organizations. No, he says, while you're living, use worldly wealth, and then when the last check bounces, you're ready to die. I decide I'm going to do that. So since I turned 70, I'm trying to give more and more of my money away so that my net worth decreases as I get older. I tell my kids, look, you're not going to inherit a lot of money when I die. I I like the slogan, no child left a dime. (laughs) But I'll tell them, I'm going to give it to you while I'm living because now's the time that you need it. What most people do, they live to 90, they have a lot of money and things saved up. They will their money to their kids and their kids are 60. They don't need it then. When do they need it? When they're younger, they get bills and kids going to school. So I tell my kids, I'm going to give it to you while I'm alive and I get to see you enjoy it. So every Christmas, I don't have to worry about buying Christmas gifts. I just write out this really generous check, put it in a white envelope, hang it on the Christmas tree. And uh, it's the grand finale of Christmas. And when all the gifts are opened up, my sons will go up and take that envelope off and go over with their wives and they'll open up and then my daughters-in-law squeal and come over and give me a big hug and my sons come over and say thanks dad you bailed me out I really needed this your health's still good you got a lot of speaking engagements next year you know they're they're not hoping I die they get a hold of it they're wanting me to stay alive you see I've used worldly wealth to make friends of my kids when do they need it now when's the church need it now And you know what? I'm having a whole lot more fun at Christmas than those of you who are hoarding it up. You want to be joyful? More blessed to give than to receive. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. Well, I just don't have enough saved up right now. I don't have that kind of money. I guarantee you, you've got valuables in your house you don't even notice anymore. Silver and china and guns and jewelry, you don't even look at. Do you ever think about just giving it away and the joy of somebody knowing they have it now 
need when they need it. My wife and I moved for the first time in 27, 28 years a year ago, and I'm packing up the things in my office in my house, and I found some sports memorabilia on the shelf I hadn't looked at for years. And my son Phil, a policeman, was helping me to pack. I said, Phil, would you want any of these things now? He said, well, let me see. He goes on the internet on his phone. He said, hey, Dad, this, this baseball signed by Leo DeRocher is worth $350. Dad, this helmet, little helmet signed by this quarterback is worth $750. I said, well, give it back then. <laughs> no. I said, go ahead and take it. That's all right. And I guarantee you they're not on his shelf today. Because he, he's, we're using that worldly wealth to make friends for ourselves. And I would just challenge you. As you mature in Christ, use worldly wealth to make friends for yourselves so that when it's gone, you'll be welcomed into eternal dwellings and you'll be more joyful. Well, here's the last thing that I think we need to do. And that is focus more on heaven as you get older. Spend an increasing amount of time thinking about what awaits you in heaven. Colossians 3.2 says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. The reason we get gloomy and battle depression is because our focus is on this world and we know deep down in our hearts it can be so easily taken from us. Our health is slipping away. Our kids move away. Our money is undependable in the stock market. Our church is changing. Death is sneaking up on us. And life isn't joyful because we're focused on this uncertain world. But if we really believe what we say we believe, the more we mature in Christ, the more we lift our eyes and we focus on the things that are unseen and we realize the best is yet to be. I'm 74 years old. And I got to tell you, I'm thinking a lot more about heaven these days. A year ago, I was in Dallas, Texas. And uh, I awakened with a familiar pain in my calf of my leg. I'd had two blood clots before. And I thought, I'm getting another. I called my doctor in Louisville, Kentucky. He said, you go straight to the hospital. I went to Baylor Hospital. They did... Uh, uh, Ultrasound. They said, oh, Mr. Russell, you, you've got a serious blood clots all the way up to your groin. We need to take some x-rays. need to give you some blood thinner. ER doctor came in. He said, Mr. Russell, three fragments of those blood clots have lodged in your lung. Had one of those hit your heart, you would have been dead in two seconds. Two seconds? That's not very long to repent. <laughs> Do you understand how close you are to heaven? And as we mature in the Christian life, more and more we lift our eyes from the things of this world that are temporary to the things that are eternal. And think, you know what? Regardless what happens here, I can still be joyful because the best is yet to be. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised by some things. I think we're, first of all, going to, we're going to be really surprised at the awesomeness of God. The Bible says nobody's ever seen God at any time. And the Bible says his ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. <laughs> Isaiah says, who can know 
the mind of God. He has measured the heavens by the breadth of his hands. He holds the dust of the earth in a basket. And one day when our spiritual eyes are open, we're going to see the God who set the stars in place and designed the DNA molecule. And I tell you what, I, 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 I know this much. We're going to fall on our knees and cry holy. Something else is going to surprise us about heaven, I think. I think we're going to be surprised at the multitude and the magnitude of angels. You know, the Bible says there's a spirit world that we don't see. Just like we don't see electricity or microwaves. And there are angels all around that we don't see. Very seldom do they reveal, reveal themselves to men. But when our spiritual eyes are opened, I think we're going to be fascinated... Revelation 5 says that there are 10,000 times 10,000 angels, 100 million of them. And we're going to be captivated by these spirit beings created a little higher than man. I think when we get to heaven, we're going to be surprised at how good we feel. I remember the first day I retired after 40 years of being a mega church preacher, I couldn't get over how good it felt not to have that kind of pressure. Or I remember the day I left Louisville, Kentucky. It was 98 degrees, high humidity. We flew to Denver, Colorado. We got in the SUV and we drove up Mount Evans. We got about 7,000 feet. I got out of the van and the air was cool and crisp and light. Sun was shining. And I took my first breath. I said, wow, why am I not living out here? And I think in this world, we're so accustomed to living with pressure and pain and problems and pollution. We think it's normal. But that first day in heaven, we're going to be just enthralled with how good we feel. The Bible says, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither has it entered into the heart of man the things that wait those who love him. So regardless of what's going on in your life right now, be joyful because the very best is yet to be. We have a wonderful woman in our church who died about a year ago. Her name is Lee Tate. Here's a picture of Lee. And she's just a radiant countenance. Of, this is the way she looked all the time. Just, just, she's 86 at this picture. In fact, she was so attractive that the secular world often hired her to promote their products. You see a picture on billboards or ads on TV. But she was really active in her church. Big encourager to me. Now, her life was not always easy. Ten years before this picture, her beloved husband, Dr. Robert Tate, died. And she had doted over him. She was just devoted to him. When he died, she really missed him. But she kept singing in the choir and serving as a greeter and active in the church and that same radiant countenance. When she died, she had left her daughters a letter that she had written to me to be given to me after she died. I want to read just a paragraph and we'll close. Dear Bob, when you receive this note of thanks, I will have arrived safely home to the Lord Jesus Christ and the sweet prince he gave me as my traveling companion through this earthly journey. But when you arrive, don't look for us at the gate because we'll have gone on downtown where the action is. <laughs> Bob may be playing drums in the marching band. Meanwhile, comfort my darling precious girls, Sarah and Robin, until we meet again in Christ Jesus, Lee. That's what I'm talking about. The assurance of salvation because we're children of God. A choice to be joyful regardless of circumstances because today is all you have. 
and a spirit of giving, even taking time to write a letter to somebody to be given after you die. And the assurance that we're not focusing on this world, but the one to come, because the best is yet to be. So I say to you, don't be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy. Unto you is born today a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you that while the world is falling apart, as you predicted, the earth and everything in it is going to pass away. We have this hope that can never be taken from us, will never perish, spoil, or fade, kept in heaven for us. So help us to live every day full of joy, as did Jesus, our Savior. Amen.